Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries. Welcome to Jewish Awareness Podcast, a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. On Friday nights at our headquarters, we host a Bible study. Generally, we do verse-by-verse studies of different books of the Bible. Through the years, these studies have looked at the books of Isaiah, Ezekiel, John, and Hebrews. At times, we will have studies devoted to Jewish cultural events or issues relating to Israel and prophecy. These studies can be viewed live through the JAM Facebook live stream platform on Fridays. If you have questions or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org. Email us at office at jewishawareness.org or call us at 919-275-4477. This information will be repeated at the end of the podcast. Enjoy the Bible study. John chapter 6, we've gone a ways into John chapter 6. I think we ended with verse 36 last time. Um, But I included a couple of previous verses um, just to kind of bring us up to speed as we continue here in John chapter 6. John chapter 6 is a long chapter. There's 71 verses. I don't know if we'll get through the rest of the verses tonight, but I'm prepared to do it if time allows. So we'll see how this goes. If not, though, I'm teaching next week as well. So we very well may just be keeping this handout another week, (coughs) depending on where we end. Um, okay, Bob's giving me the evil eye or something. <laughs> okay, all right, so let's, let's, let's get started here. So Jesus is in Galilee, if you remember. Okay, he came up to Galilee, and he has fed 5,000 plus Jewish people with five loaves of bread and two fish. The next day they followed him to Capernaum. This is this multitude of people. <clears throat> and these are Jewish people, by the way, in the region of Galilee. And they're not all necessarily from Uh, one specific town or another because there's such a large multitude. I mentioned the last time I taught um, that Nazareth at the time of Jesus had a population of like 200 people. I mean, it was like a village. It wasn't even really a town. It was uh, very small. And so the fact that he has 5,000 people following him in Galilee, uh, on the the shore of, of, of the Sea of Galilee, it's a big deal. Uh, he, He is gaining popularity and momentum in his teaching and in his following. And so they wanted to know where he went the next morning. They couldn't find him. They said he's probably at Capernaum, and that's where they went. They followed him, took ships from Tiberias over to Capernaum. And uh, when they caught up with him, they're trying to find out, um, you know, what they can do to have eternal life, what they can do to um, be blessed of God. And also, they're kind of looking for another handout. (laughs) because they were just fed uh, the previous night. So he he tells them that they need to believe. They said, what work must we do? And and, and Jesus said, well, this is the work that you do, and that is to believe. And that's a little bit too hard for them to grasp that, that it's that easy, that it's that simple. I'll put it that way. They respond by asking for a sign, like the bread Moses gave from heaven. Now you have verse 33 there on your notes. In chapter 6, let's look up at verse 
number 30. I'm just going to back up a couple verses before we get into, the, into verse 33. Verse 30 says, They said therefore unto him, What sign showest thou then that we may see and believe thee? What dost thou work? And so Jesus said, This is what you need to do. You need to believe. And they said, Well, show us a sign so that we can believe. They were just previously fed miraculously from some kid's lunch. And they're asking for a sign. We're going to find out there's a couple of different focuses in this chapter. Now, see if somebody can remember. There is a major focus in the book of John. It's one word. It starts with the letter A. Jesus's authority. Okay? Jesus's authority is at stake. That is what is being claimed that he has this authority because he is God. And we will see that come up over and over and over again, especially in Jesus' dealings with the Jewish people, which is like the majority of the book of John. He's dealing with Jewish people, people that know the Torah. They're familiar with the prophets. They're familiar with Moses. They're familiar with at least some messianic prophecies. And so, especially with the Judean Jews, okay, the religious leadership, they don't want to believe his authority. And the others like this crowd here from the north of Israel, the people of the land, quote-unquote, they're still every bit as Jewish as the Pharisaical religious leadership from Judah. They're everyday Israelis. They're everyday Israelites. Um, and many of them believe, and many of them don't. And so we're going to see here kind of a contrast. And throughout the book of John, you will see contrasts of the believers, those that have faith and accept what Jesus says, and those that argue, those that murmur, those that say, no, that's not it. And they just cannot grasp who he really is. And they will not accept his authority. So authority is like the number one overarching theme of the book of John. Jesus' authority. And, you know, from the beginning to the end, John 1.1, in the beginning, was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And so, from the very beginning of the book of John, from the very first verse, we see Jesus has authority because he is God. So, they're saying, show us a sign. What sign showest thou that we may believe? What dost thou work? Verse 31, our fathers did eat manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Now, there's a lot of interesting parallels with what goes on here and with what went on in the book of Exodus, okay, in the wilderness, and so they just previously had, you know, a miraculous lunch, a miraculous feast provided by Jesus. And now they're saying, you know, our fathers, they were given manna from heaven, and they're kind of still holding their hands out, wanting something more. And we need to be careful that in our own lives even, we don't get so focused on wanting a sign. That's not what God wants. What God wants, blessed are those that have not seen and yet believe. And so that's what he's after. Um, our fathers did eat man in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread to eat from heaven. Now here, Jesus knowing their hearts, when they said he gave them manna to eat from heaven, when they, when, they, when they say he gave us bread to eat from heaven, they're not talking about God. They're not talking about the Father. They're talking about Moses. Because look at Jesus' response. Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven but my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. Okay, so, verse 33. We'll pick it up here. 
For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. The manna from heaven was simply a picture of the true sustenance that comes from God. And I think we had that statement last, last time we were together. This is interesting. He giveth life unto who? The world. Okay? This is a universal term. Universal terms are often used in scripture not to imply universal salvation. Don't get me wrong. The whole entire world is not going to be saved. It's a universal term to imply universal availability. Okay? Everybody potentially can accept Christ. Everybody potentially can accept Christ and get saved. Um, and th those universal terms are so often used not to imply, again, universal salvation, but the universal availability of salvation. And I put some verses down here. I guess probably for time's sake we won't look at all of them, but just to have them written down there. These are only the verses up until this point, only in the book of John. Welcome. John 1.9 John 1, 12, John 1, 29, 3, 15 through 17, verse 36, chapter 4, verses 14 and 42. Over and over again, the terms are used for the world or whosoever. And it's an, in, it's an encapsulating term, not at all saying that everybody, can, everybody will be saved, but that everybody can potentially be saved. Okay. Uh, moving on to verse number 34. Verse number 34 says, Then said they unto him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. Okay, so the bread of God is he which came down from heaven. Give us this bread. Give us this bread always, continually, please. And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger. He that believeth on me shall never thirst. You know... I did something in my notes, and it's not showing up here. I guess it didn't show up in anybody's. Man. I highlighted a bunch of things. I highlighted a bunch of uh, sections. If you guys have, like, a pencil or something to write with, okay, we're going to do this kind of as we go here. What I wanted to do, and what I thought I did in my, in my printouts here, is to highlight every single instance that pinpoints Jesus' authority. Because it happens often. The bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven. Okay, here he's pointing to himself as the bread of God. They say unto him, and that's verse 33. Uh, verse 34, they say unto him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. Or Master, give us this bread. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger. He that believeth on me, emphasizing the object of belief. It's me. I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger. This is what they have trouble with. Um, the people that Jesus is speaking to, and it'll help us as we get to some difficult, quote-unquote, difficult passages here in, in John chapter 6, that Jesus' authority is at the forefront. And he's talking to people that, yeah, we'll believe God, but we're not going to believe, believe you. They're not understanding that he is God. They're not understanding that he is the son of God. They're not understanding that he came from the father. They're not understanding that the father has given him his authority and that his authority, conversely, his authority comes from the father. And that'll make a whole lot of statements that we read here make more sense when we realize the context. 
uh, this verse from Deuteronomy chapter 8 in verse 3, it shows us the reason why God gave them manna. The reason why God gave them manna in the wilderness. And he humbled thee, and suffered thee to hunger, and fed thee with manna, which thou knewest not, neither did thy fathers know. Why? That he might make thee know that man doth not live by bread only, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord doth man live. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. Man doesn't live by bread alone. Jesus quotes this verse to Satan in Matthew chapter 4. Jesus is the word of God. So what this passage is saying, what this verse is saying, verse 35, true Israelites, in the context of who Jesus is talking to, they're all Jewish people, true Israelites will live by Jesus himself. I am the bread of life. The true bread is he which came down from heaven. I am the bread of life. Um, he that cometh to me shall never hunger. He that believeth on me shall never thirst. When you see the reason in Deuteronomy chapter 8, why God gave them that manna, so that they may know that man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from God, everything that comes from God. And so Jesus is saying, that is me. The word became flesh, right? To quote from John himself, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so all of these things, and just reading through John 6 casually, we, may not, we might not realize this, but all of these things are pointing to Jesus has the authority. All of those things in, in, in Deuteronomy and in, in, in the manna from heaven, it points to something greater. It points to Jesus. He says, I am that true bread from heaven, which came down. Then he says this in verse 36. But I say unto you that you also have seen me and believe not. Now, if we compare this to the Samaritan woman's response in John chapter 4, we'll see a, a huge contrast. Jesus knew these people's hearts, did he not? Okay, the majority of them that are speaking to him here at this time that had the bread from heaven or the bread from, from Jesus the previous night, and now they're asking for bread from heaven. Jesus knows their hearts. Jesus knows their thoughts because he's God. Not only did they say, well... Moses gave us bread, and Jesus knew what they were thinking. But also, here, in what he's saying to them that he is the bread of life, he says, you know what? You're asking for a sign. You've seen me, and you don't believe. He's, he's knowing their hearts that they're not believing in what he's saying right now. They're not receiving it. There's kind of a, an obstruction to them receiving him, and that's their lack of faith. Um, look at John chapter 4. Keep your finger there in John 6 or a bookmark. Turn over a couple pages to John 4, 13. John 4 and verse 13. Jesus answered and said unto her, speaking to the woman at the well, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst but the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. And then she says, sir, give me this water. It's, a, it's like the same exact thing when he said, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger. And they said, Lord, evermore give us this bread. But go down to verse 39. Look at her response. Verse number 39. 
many of the Samaritans of that city, many of them, including the woman, believed on him. For the saying of the woman which testified, he told me all that ever I did. So when the Samaritans were come unto him, they besought him that he would tarry with them. Do you see the difference here? They're not asking him to stay because they want a handout. They're asking him to stay because they believe him. They believe he is who he's saying he is. And they besought him that he would tarry with them. And he abode with them two more days. And many more believed because of his own word. And said unto the woman, now we believe. Okay, these people, these additional ones that are believing. Now we believe not because of thy only thy saying, for we have heard him ourselves, and know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Did Jesus give them anything? Did he do any kind of miraculous thing for them? It says it's just because of his own words, because he was teaching them. And they said, now we believe, and now we know that this is indeed the Messiah, the Savior of the world. These people had a Jewish heritage as well, by the way, even though they're rejected by the Judean Jews. And even though they don't have the correct Torah, okay, they're kind of like an offshoot, they're still somewhat Jewish in their heritage. Judea, Samaria, and, you know, the uttermost. Um, so there's a big contrast between those and these here in Galilee. I said unto you that you have seen me and believe not. And these people had an additional uh, miracle. They had some additional... Uh, accountability upon them because they ate of that bread and were filled miraculously. And the people of Samaria, they had no such thing. All they had was Jesus' word and they believed it. And so we have to ask ourselves, as believers, as, as Christians, when we hear God's word preached or when we read this book, are we more like the people in John 4 or are we more like the people in John 6? When we see this and read this, do we just instantly believe it with faith? Or do we kind of, uh, I mean, you know, we'll believe it. We believe this is the word of God. But as far as our taking it in and applying it to our lives, do we kind of hesitate sometimes? Um, that's what we see here with these people that he's speaking to in John chapter 6. Now, here we get to... The controversial section. Bob asked me if I was talking about anything controversial here tonight. Verse 37. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. What does this mean? This verse, verse 37, along with a couple other verses that we will probably get to tonight in John chapter 6. Are used by many to say that there are some that are predestined to salvation as the elect, and there are some that are predestined to never get saved and to eternal damnation and hell. Um, let's look at this verse. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. All that, okay, all that the Father giveth is used collectively. This refers to the same group in verse 40. And when we go through this, we're going to be jumping back and forth because these verses explain each other. These verses, within the context of John chapter 6, interpret themselves. This refers to the same group in verse 40, which says, Everyone that seeth the Son and believeth on him has eternal life. See, Scripture is its own best commentary. 
if we're looking for an answer of how to apply a verse, we look at the surrounding verses. We look at the verse in its context. Who is Jesus talking to? What is the message that he is speaking? Uh, and, and so on. Verse number 40 uses the exact same kind of wording, and it says, everyone that seeth the Son and believeth on him has everlasting life. What did he just say in verse 36? You've seen me, and you don't believe. You see, the, the, the accountability is upon us. Okay? Jesus reveals himself. The Lord reveals himself. God's word reveals Jesus to us here today. God's spirit convicts us, and it's on us. It's on our shoulders to respond. We are accountable. Uh, Romans 1 says that there's, you know, they're without excuse. Even those that don't have this book in their language, nature shows them that there's a God, and they know that they're accountable. They know that they're fallen, or they should. They're without excuse. Um, and so, as we go through this, and it's going to be little by little, um, we're not going to get all of the answer all at once, but as we go through these verses and get the whole picture, we will understand what is being said. Um, and so, when it says, everyone that seeth the Son and believeth on him has everlasting life in verse number 40, it's not saying everyone that is elect and sees the Son and believes on him has everlasting life. Just keep that in the back of your mind, okay? It speaks of those, the given, all that the Father giveth me, speaks of those that believe on Jesus. The Father promises that they will be resurrected. Once again, another reference, verse number 39. Okay, there's a lot of verses that correspond uh, to one another. And when we get to these, we will kind of go back and look at them uh, in comparison. So the given, all that the Father giveth me, speaks of those that believe on Jesus. They will be resurrected, as it says in verse 39. Giveth, okay, all that the Father giveth me, didomai, is in the present tense. It's not all that the Father has given once and for all, as in a past decree that has been decreed. There is a number of people that the Father has given to Jesus. That's not what it's saying. What it's saying is, those that the Father continues to give me in an ongoing action. There was people that were saved in Jesus' day. You can probably think back to the day that you were saved. That is when you were given to Jesus by the Father, according to this passage. Given his didomai in the present tense, meaning the ones which the Father continues to give me. How do we become given, quote-unquote, to the Son. I already mentioned verse number 40 says, him that sees the Son and believes on him, that's kind of a parallel passage, has everlasting life. John 1.12 says, but as many as received him, not as, not as many as were chosen by the Father, but as many as received Jesus, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. The people here that Jesus is talking to, do they know who he's talking about when he, taught, when he mentions the Father? So the Father gave, you know, it wasn't Moses that gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father, which is in heaven, okay? You're going to see him continually mention the Father. He's done this in the past. Just in the book of John alone, he's continually mentioned his relationship with the Father. Now here Jesus is talking to a bunch of Jewish people. If you imagine a Jewish person being in the audience here tonight, Okay? An unbelieving Jewish person. Not a Jewish person that believes Jesus is the Messiah, but a Jewish person that rejects Jesus as the Messiah. 
comes in here and sits down on the front row. They're going to have issue. They're going to take issue with Jesus claiming, I am the bread of life. They're going to take issue with Jesus saying, whosoever believes on me has everlasting life. They're going to take issue with a ton of things that we're going to find him say here in this passage. Um, when he says, the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven. A Jewish person that does not believe that Jesus is the Messiah is going to take issue with those things. Why? Because they don't believe Jesus is who he says he is. They don't believe Jesus has authority, and there's a complete disconnect between the Father, or quote-unquote God, and this person Jesus. Okay, there is a anti-missionary book that was written by a Jewish uh, rabbi entitled, You Take Jesus, I'll Take God. Okay, they don't understand that Jesus is God. They're one and the same. When we look at this passage in John chapter 6, pretty much every single verse that we're going to look at, including the ones that are difficult, quote-unquote, the ones that are used by those in Calvinistic belief to say that we're predestined for heaven or hell, that God chooses, the context here is Jewish people that accept God, but not Jesus. And so what he's trying to get them to understand is those that believe in me, they're believing rightly in the Father. Those that reject me, they don't know the Father. They don't know God. And if we look at that in the correct context, a lot of our questions are going to be answered. In verse 36, again, he says, you've seen me and you don't believe. Verse 40 is kind of the opposite. It says, he that sees the Son and believes has everlasting life. But here in verse 36, you've seen me and you don't believe. The Samaritans, they just heard Jesus' word and they believed. But the Jewish people here, they are rejecting who Jesus is. They're rejecting what he's teaching. You've seen me and believe not. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. You see what he's saying? He's saying the person whom you say is your God, the God of Israel, the creator of the universe, he is the one that brings people to me. And you're saying that you're rejecting me, but trusting in him. It doesn't work that way. You cannot have one without the other. If you're rejecting me, you're rejecting the Father. You reject the Father, you reject me. All that cometh to me, or all that the Father gives me, uh, come to me, and him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. What Jesus is saying is those that believe, and we're going to find here in a minute um, the phrase drawn, okay? The Father will draw them. He's making the connection that there is a transition here. He's teaching something that they weren't really aware of. And he's saying that my authority comes from the Father. When you're believing in me, when you're accepting me, you're not accepting some man or some good teacher or some prophet. You're accepting the God of Israel. Because I and the Father are inseparably connected. And because of that, when you're believing in me, you're actually believing in him. But when you reject me, you are rejecting him. Um, so, in verse number 41 and 42 of John 4, we read this already, but many more believed because of his own word. Those in Samaria that heard what the Samaritan woman said, okay, that this, this Messiah, he told me all things ever that I did, and they believed. And then even more of them believed when Jesus remained there for two days, and he taught them. And they believed because of his own word. They weren't necessarily chosen to believe. 
They believed of their own volition in what Jesus said and what Jesus did. Um, not because of thy saying, verse 42 of John 4, I have it written there, for we have heard him ourselves and know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. You see, Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit and the Word of God appeal to us, make an appeal to us to believe. And it is upon us to reject it or accept it. The Samaritan people in John chapter 4 we know ourselves, we've heard him ourselves, we know this is indeed the Savior, and now we believe. Those in John chapter 6, Jesus has made the appeal. Jesus has told them what they need to do more than once, and they reject it. They believe not. There is volition involved. We must respond to God's appeal. Those who respond in faith are given to Jesus by the Father. And specifically in the context of Jewish people, that do not accept that Jesus is the Messiah. They are kind of on the outside thinking that they're right with God. Thinking like that rabbi that wrote that book, you take Jesus, I'll take God. That's kind of the mindset of these people that Jesus is speaking to in John chapter 6. And he's going to continue to drive home the connection between he and the Father and that believing in him is believing in the Father. And in fact, if you believe in me, Jesus says, it's because the Father has worked in your heart to do so. Um, okay. Verse 36 has a sense of you're at fault. You've seen me and you still don't believe. The invitation is out and yet they refused. This is the main point right here. There are believers and non-believers. Yes. No, not at all. Not at all. You'd be hard-pressed um, to get them to believe that there is plurality within the one true God. It's one, only one, no Holy Spirit, no Son, just God. One, that's it. There is no Trinity. Mm -hmm. They'll say it's a plurality of majesty, which does not match up, by the way. Okay, quick Hebrew lesson. All right, you guys have heard of Behemoth. Okay, you see some kind of big, you know, SUV or some, you know, Hummer or something driving down the road. Man, that's a behemoth. Okay, that's kind of a word that we use even in English, but it's a Hebrew word. And that Hebrew word is used in Job to speak of what I believe is a brachiosaurus. God created dinosaurs in the same six days that he created man. They were here, okay? Job talks about two of them specifically, Behemoth and Leviathan. Behemoth is the word for plural animals. Animals, plural. Okay, one animal, behemoth, many animals or beasts of the field, many animals, behemot. Behemoth, one, behemot or behemoth in our way of saying it, many animals. Okay, that is a plurality of majesty. He talks about behemoth eating grass like an ox, right? That's what the Brachiosaurus did. He had a tail like a cedar tree. Okay, those that are in liberal circles of Christianity try and say that it was a hippo. Does a hippo have a tail like a cedar tree? That's humorous. Anyway, um, all right, so a behemoth is, a, is, a, is an animal, right? It's a beast of the field. It eats grass like an ox. But is it just an animal? No, it's a great majestic animal, okay? So behemoth is used, the plural of animal, animals. This animal is named animals, the plurality of majesty. Now, when it talks about behemoth, 
it constantly says the word he. He did this. He eats grass like an ox. His tail is like a cedar tree. And it's singular. He. Okay? That's plurality of majesty. That is plurality of majesty. Behemoth, the name is plural, but it's just one. What does God say? He's Elohim. He says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Okay? And so when you see Elohim, eh, maybe it's a plurality of majesty, but it is more than that. It is so much more. Behemoth is a plurality of majesty. We see behemoth, animals, plural, to speak of one great majestic big animal, but the pronoun he is used. He, his tail, you know, all that kind of stuff. But God says that let us make man in our image. And then when, you know, they built the Tower of Babel, uh, God says, let us go down and see, you know, man has corrupted himself. Um, okay, anyway, rabbit trail, but that's okay. I like Hebrew rabbit trails. Um, okay, so um, this is the point here. There are believers and non-believers. We will see a contrast between those that believe and those that don't. Those who believe, uh, believe me, Jesus is saying, those who believe me, are not just mine. I don't act in and of myself. I only do the things which the Father shows me to do. They are one, okay, the Father and the Son. He told Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Um, and so those who believe are not just mine. Now, people in Judaism who reject Jesus as Messiah, do they believe that he's God? No. They believe he's just some guy. He's a rabbi that tried to overthrow Rome and failed. Okay, you guys ever hear of Rabbi Shmuley, Shalom in the Home? He had a show on TLC. He's like America's rabbi. Anyway, he has a book called Kosher Jesus where he tries to rewrite the history of the New Testament and say that Jesus is just, you know, he's a rabbi. Yeah, he was a good man. He was a teacher and he tried to overthrow Rome and he died in the act of trying to overthrow Rome. Um, it's garbage. Uh, as, as Mark says, there's a good French word for that, garbage. Um, it's, it's, it's unbelievable that they would do that because none of that is supported by the Tanakh, by the Hebrew prophecies, and by the New Testament. Um, but the Jewish people that reject Jesus would say, he's just a man. And by the way, they can't really say that he's a good man or a teacher. You know, he's either Lord, liar, or lunatic. Um, but anyway, they would say, they would separate him from God, and he's just a man. What Jesus is saying is those who believe me are not just mine, but are entrusted to me from my Father, whom you say is your God. That is the point. That is why Jesus is saying these things the way that he's saying them, because his audience is not realizing the connection between him and the Father, that they are one. And you know what? Those that believe in me, you're rejecting me right now. Those that believe in me are entrusted do, to do so from my Father. And so whom you say is your God. Um, he's showing them that the act of believing is, um, should come from a heart that is trusting in God and kind of shows them their, their fault and their error. Again, Jesus' authority and sonship are front and center as points of focus and division. His connection with the Father is, is, is pivotal in this passage. I have a quote here from Robert Schenck his book, Life in Christ. And I have a, I have a disclaimer at the end. Uh, he says this, There is nothing about God's gift of believers to be the heritage of the Son who died for them, 
which somehow transforms the Gospels, whosoever will, into a whosoever must. And a most of you shan't. Okay? Now there's a belief system that says, whosoever will, uh, those that would believe, are, uh, they have no choice in the matter. You have, um, what's the word called? I'm thinking of it right now. Irresistible grace. Irresistible. You cannot resist it. There is no way to say no. If God has ordained for you to be saved, you will be saved. And so that's why he throws in this phrase, uh, whosoever will is changed into whosoever must. Okay? If God has elected you, you must. You have no choice. And also, by the way, the flip side of that coin is not only whosoever must, but most of you, everybody else, shan't. You know, you can't do it if you're not elected. It's impossible for you to get saved if you're not chosen by God. There is nothing about it which binds men in the straitjacket of an antecedent decree, meaning an ancient decree, of positive, unconditional election and reprobation. He's saying that there's nothing, and I agree with him in this, there's nothing in this passage, all that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. None of that says uh, that those that believe um, are elected to do so by a decree previously made in history and that you have no choice in the matter one way or the other um, while insisting all the while that they are free, free to choose. It's again from Robert Shank. I don't agree with this author in all areas. I'm not an Arminian, nor am I a Calvinist. Okay, Mark has mentioned this before. There's a third position known as a Biblicist or the traditional to traditionalist point of view. Um, any questions at this point? And again, if you have some questions, they may be answered in the verses following. Yes. Arminian, okay, you know that passage where it says that like uh, there's, there's, two, there's two people, blind leaders of the blind, you know, and you like fall into the ditch on one side or the other. <laughs> okay, so Calvinism is one side, one extreme. Where God elects, you have no personal choice in the matter, okay? And you're either predisposed, pre-elected, pre-chose to believe and go to heaven or to refuse and go to hell. And you cannot resist God's grace and you must be unconditionally elected in order to be saved. The Arminian point of view is the exact opposite. It puts man entirely in control um, and the sovereignty of God is entirely downplayed, okay? Where they say that um, man is in complete control even of his own salvation to the point where we can just walk away. We can lose our salvation and that is not biblical. So you fall into the ditch on the one side of um, believing that we're robots and that God has damned people eternally out of his own choice on the other side, you have people believing that we can't be kept uh, eternally by the power of God because we are in control. Both of those sides are wrong. There is a center that believes, yes, there is a free will that man has been given, but there is also the sovereignty of God. And the two are not opposed. They work in harmony. The way that God created us, the way that God worked the plan of the gospel, the way that God brings salvation. God 
gives us his word. God sent his son to die. God convicts the world of sin. You heard Mark say, God convicts the world of sin and righteousness and judgment to come through the Holy Spirit. Our job is to respond by believing. Um, and so that's Calvinism and Arminianism in a nutshell. Um, I believe in the sovereignty of God, but I also believe we've been given a free will. And that's the middle position that is neither nor. Okay? Um, Jesus says this in verse 38. For I came down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. Now, I know you guys just flipped the page, but while we are reading that verse, I want you to think about the context of who he's talking to. Again, Jewish people that will accept God, quote-unquote, but are rejecting Jesus. They're rejecting who Jesus is saying he is. Think about that when I read these words, for I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. All of these things are pointing, they're driving at the point that Jesus and the Father are one, that Jesus is sent by the Father, that the act of believing is not just some kind of thing where we believe in Jesus apart from God, it's a package deal. Verse 39, And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me. Now who is the given, again, in these passages? Believers. Okay, the believers. The, the ones that are given. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth. You see how seeing the Son and believing is parallel to, to given. Okay? Um, all which he given me, all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again the last day. This is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up the last day. A parallel passage. The given are raised up the last day. Those which see the Son and believe are raised up in the last day. They are one and the same. The will of the Father is that those that believe on the Son would be raised up, okay, at the last day. So that when we have um, died and we are in the grave, the Bible says those which are um, alive, those which are awake, will not prevent them or go before those which are asleep. And we will be raised to meet them in the air and meet the Lord in the air, and we shall all be changed. Okay? We, we then which are alive and remain, the Bible says, shall be caught up together with them in the air to meet the Lord in the air. So shall we ever be with the Lord. Speaking of the, the, the rapture, okay? the resurrection of those that are um, church-age saints. And so we will meet the Lord in the air, we will have our new bodies. That is what it's speaking of here. It is the will of the Lord that those that believe in the Son will be raised up in the last day. Verse 41, The Jews then murmured at him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, and I, I, I have this passage in a different color to kind of make it stick out, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? You see what I'm saying here about this whole idea? You take Jesus, I'll take God. That is what they are thinking. He keeps talking about over and over and over his father, his father, his father. 
my Father hath sent me. Him that believeth on me, everyone which sees the Son and believes should have everlasting life, and I will raise him up in the last day. How can he say this? Isn't this Jesus? We, we know his mom and dad, you know, Joseph and Mary. They're thinking that he is just a man. How can he say? How is it then that he saith, verse 42, I came down from heaven. They're not believing his deity. They're not believing that he is God. They're not believing that God is his father. They're not believing that he is the son. They're not believing that he has authority to claim all of these things that believe in me and you'll be saved. Believe in me and you'll have everlasting life. I am the bread of life. I came down from heaven and I am going to raise up those that my father has given me. It all works together. The relationship between the father and the son to try and bring them to a realization of the truth that they need to accept that in order to be saved. Jesus therefore answered and said unto them, Murmur not among yourselves. No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Now, verse 44 in combination with verse 37 is what's used by many in the Calvinist camp to say that we're predestined, that we have to, um, the phrase is used, be regenerated before we're saved. It's kind of a weird thing. Um, and that none of it, none of it um, is on our shoulders, on our part. It's all entirely of God. We are basically robots. And you're a robot that either has a switch flipped, you know, before you're born that says you will believe, or a robot that has a flip switch that says you will not believe. Uh, I believe that's completely unbiblical. We're going to look at this here. The context of verse 44 is verse 43. These Jewish people were murmuring at Jesus. Notice the amazing parallel. Remember how I said there's going to be a par parallels between Exodus? The parallel um, to the Israelites murmuring in the wilderness. Jesus gave them miraculously a full meal and they were filled and then there was 12 baskets left over of what? Bread and fish. And then he says, I am the bread of life. I am the true bread which came down from heaven. And that the manna in the book of Exodus is just a picture of the true bread from heaven, which is the word of God in human flesh, Jesus himself. What did they do in the wilderness when God gave them man manna? Starts with an M. An M. They murmured. Yes, they murmured. They grumbled. And so here... How can Jesus say that he is that bread from heaven? How can he say that? We know his parents. And they murmured at him for that. Just as the Israelites in the wilderness murmured for the physical bread, here these are murmuring at Jesus' claim that he is the bread of life. Yes? Okay, who did, the, who did the Pharisees think the Messiah would be? Should be. That's a good question. Um, the Jewish people in, in Jesus' day that he talked to of the sect of the Pharisees, he said, whose son is he? And they said, well, David's. And then Jesus said, well, how does he say then, you know, my Lord, you know, said, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit down my right hand, how is he his son if he's his Lord? Um, and they ceased to ask him questions. But they were, they were familiar with some of the Messianic prophecies. Um, I think that there was probably more of an understanding of who the Messiah would be back then within the first century group of Pharisees than there is today in Judaism in general. Um, they've kind of lost those things, and a lot of that is due in part to rabbis that would purposefully, and Jewish people that would purposefully 
twist the word of God to avoid it being fulfilled in Jesus. Um, they didn't have that really back then, um, but they did have um, a lot of power. They did have a lot of a following. They did have a lot of control, and they didn't want to lose that to some, you know, fisherman from Galilee that was going to, or carpenter from Galilee that was going to come along and, and say, I am the Messiah. So they had some understanding. What entirely complete understanding, I'm not sure. We know that the scribes told Herod that he'd be born in Bethlehem. Um, they probably had a pretty decent understanding, but certain things they just chose not to believe. They were willingly ignorant. Uh, did they believe that the Messiah would be God or that the Messiah would be like a superman There was, th there was a thought, and there still is the thought today, that the Messiah is going to be just a man. That he's going to be a charismatic leader. He is going to be a uh, military deliverer. He's going to defeat our oppressors. And he is going to be the ultimate patriot. Um, and everything is physical. There's no spiritual in, in sense at all. It's just physical. And that's what they're looking for today. And the Antichrist is going to come along and, and exactly fit that bill of what the majority of Jewish people today are looking for in the Messiah. They don't realize, like for instance in Isaiah 53, so many, so many verses talk about his substitutionary death. Now there was recognized that the Messiah would die by some, but many of them didn't want to believe that. Many of them thought that he's just going to deliver us. Um basically, uh, which uh, kind of parallels what's, what's going on today. Um, the only difference, the main difference between the pharisaical belief of the Messiah and expectation of the Messiah as opposed to today is today they've already had, that's okay, that's all right. They've already had 2,000 years of time. <laughs> they've already had 2,000 years of time to harden themselves against Jesus and to specifically say he's not the Messiah and to try and refute him. That's the only difference between, well, the main difference between the Pharisees in Jesus' day regarding the belief in the Messiah and the Jewish people of today. The majority of the Jewish people today, their belief is based either on ignorance or just, you know, Jesus isn't for the Jewish people. Jesus is for the Gentiles, you know? Um, and it's a complete misunderstanding of what Jesus claimed and what the Tanakh, what the Hebrew Scriptures uh, says the Messiah should be. And so um, that's largely what we're trying to communicate with the radio and with our literature and, and evangelism uh, is that very thing, that they're misunderstanding who the Messiah would be. Um, good question. Okay, so let's see if we can get through. I think we'll get through at least the rest of this page. <laughs> um, okay. The context of verse 44 is verse 43. The Jewish people were murmuring against Jesus. Okay, so his response, what does Jesus say? Murmur not among yourselves. Okay, don't murmur. They're saying, how can he be that bread from heaven? How can he say that he came down from heaven? We know his, we know his parents and they murmured against him and Jesus' response, do not murmur. Okay, do not murmur. Do not grumble among yourselves about who I am and what I'm saying to you. Their response of murmuring was a lack of faith. 
Okay, their response of murmuring was, we don't believe this guy. And Jesus is saying, don't do that. If you are refusing me, you're refusing the Father. The Father is the one whose grace you are rejecting. The Father is the one who draws you to me. A lot of what he says emphasizing the Father, the Father, the Father is because he's meeting them where they're at in their belief system that they're thinking the Father, as they would refer to him just plain old, just God, they're thinking that he's all there is and they're rejecting Jesus' sonship. They're rejecting Jesus' messiahship. They're rejecting that Jesus is the bread of heaven that came down from heaven. That he was just a man. He was, you know, born of Mary and Joseph. We know his parents. And Jesus is saying, don't do that. Verse 44, no man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. The whole context is linking Jesus, the Son, the Messiah, with the God of Israel who is his Father. So when Jesus says, murmur not among yourselves, no man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him, and I, again, I will raise him up in the last day. If you're refusing me, you're refusing the Father. The Father is the one that draws you to me. Okay, we're going to get into this verse specifically here. The transition from the Father to the Son for a Jewish audience is the key of this whole passage. Again, and I, I don't think I can overstate it. Repetition is the key to learning. These are Jewish people that accept God, but are not accepting Jesus. They are in the process right now of refusing Jesus. And Jesus is saying, don't do it. No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. Okay, it's assumed from the Calvinistic point of view that man is, I have two points here, okay, and this is oversimplified possibly, but number one, these, these two things are assumed by the Calvinistic viewpoint in looking at this verse. Total incapable, or totally incapable, man is, I'll start there, man is totally incapable of positively responding to God's appeal to repent and believe. Number one, if God says repent and believe, man by himself, or, or just even in general, man is totally incapable of positively responding to God's appeal to repent and believe. Number two, man is compelled irresistibly by God to believe if he is one of the elect. If you're one that has that robot switch that says you will believe, you're going to believe, whether you like it or not and you have no part in it. Um, okay. Key observations. Verse 44 and verse 37. Okay, so this, these observations are these two verses combined. Look back at verse 37 for a second. Let's read it. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. Okay? All that the Father gives me continually, continually gives me, shall come to me. And him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. Now, who are the given? Believers. Believers. Okay. Key observations. Number one, all that the Father giveth me, not all he draws, shall come to me. You see, verse 44 says, No man can come to me except the Father which sent me draw him. See, we get confused when we 
make those terms, the given, and those that are drawn, the same thing. They are not the same. All that the Father giveth me, not draws, shall come to me. Him that cometh to me, not everyone that the Father draws, I will in no wise cast out. You see, the Calvinistic viewpoint would like us to believe that all that the Father draws is given. All that the Father draws, I will not cast out. All that the Father draws are going to be those that are saved. Number three, this is the Father's will, that of all which he giveth me, again, not all whom he draws, all that the Father giveth me, not draws, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again in the last day. Number four, everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him, not all who are drawn may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up. And number five, no man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. Now listen to this. This is kind of summarizing these five points. All who come have been drawn. Not all who are drawn come. Okay? Yes. Okay. That's going to be answered here in... Uh, these next couple of verses and as we go through this specific verse. But if you think about it, okay, and this is the same argument that Calvinists have for limited atonement. Okay? Limited atonement says that when Jesus died on the cross, he did not die for everybody. In the same way that why would the Father draw somebody who rejects him? Why would the Father um, draw somebody who would then refuse, or why would, the, why would the Father bother to draw somebody that would not believe? It's the same argument uh, of those that say, why would Jesus die for somebody that the Father knows beforehand is not going to believe? And so we see in Scripture, and I'll get ahead of myself here just, just a tiny bit. In John chapter 12, in verse 32, Jesus says, if I am lifted up, the Son of Man will be lifted up, speaking of his death on the cross. And if I am lifted up, he says, I will draw all men to myself. When the Father comes, or I'm sorry, when the Holy Spirit comes, he is to convict who? The world of sin, of righteousness, of judgment to come. Not just those that the Father knows in his foreknowledge would believe. Why would he even bother to do so? Well, he is, he is decreed that everybody um, is going to have the availability of salvation, even though he knows beforehand who would believe and who would not. And he's going to give that message to all in that same way. Jesus, even so far in, in, in the book of John alone, up to John chapter 6, we've seen many instances where Jesus has given the gospel. He has evangelized. He has witnessed and been rejected and been rejected and been refused. And him being God with the foreknowledge of, 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 of being God, knowing who would reject him, and yet he still does. And so um, when we see uh, the idea of that drawing going on, it's not... I am going to draw you so that you will inevitably believe. 
It's I'm going to draw you so that you will have the opportunity to believe. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so when you look at certain aspects of certain beliefs, whether it be, you know, some cult or whether it be these two sides of soteriology, meaning the study of salvation, Arminianism, Calvinism, when you look at any belief system, um, some of them inevitably, when it all boils down, the character of God, either his love or his justice is maligned. You know, it's messed up. It's, it's, it's uh, twisted from what the Bible teaches about the character of God. Um, and so everything that I'm showing you now in this example that I'm giving you of, of, of the biblicist point of view um, seeks not only be in harmony with the surrounding passages, but the whole of scripture and also with the character of God as revealed in, in the Bible. Um, does that answer your question? Okay, okay, praise the Lord. Um, okay, so, and, and, and again, as we go deeper into this and as we continue, more and more clarity will be given and more of an understanding will be seen. Um, and, and again, this is, this is the um, kind of the summary in num point number five, all who come have been drawn and not all who are drawn come. And I will raise him up uh, at the last day. All who, all who will be raised up have been drawn, but not all who have been drawn will be raised up. So we need to be careful not to confuse the term the given, all that the Father gives me. Come to me and I will raise him up. Those that believe, see the Son and believe, they will be raised up. Not to confuse that with, no man can come to me except the Father draw him. Okay, they're two different terms, the drawing and the given. Whosoever will is constantly taught in Scripture. And there's some verses there for you, John chapter 3, uh, as well as John chapter 7. Drawn does not equal irresistibly driven. Okay? And again, a lot of these things I'm bringing up because of what the Calvinist point of view teaches and to show where I differ from that point of view. The Lord has always reached out to rebellious Israel. The Pharisees resisted the Holy Ghost. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen says, As your fathers did, so also do ye. You always resist the Holy Ghost. If God's grace was irresistible, they would not have been able to resist. And yet the Holy Ghost is there, the Holy Spirit that convicts sin and righteousness and judgment and they are resisting him. They are resisting his work in his life, if you will. They are resisting the drawing of God to come to the Lamb of God, to come to Jesus, the Messiah. Drawn is not irresistibly driven. Okay. Some who have been drawn turn back without coming to Christ. Okay. And uh, you know, remember everything that Mark has been talking about so far in the book of Hebrews that is so often by the other camp, the Arminian camp, the, his, his verses that he goes through in, in Hebrews and ones that he's going to be going through when he comes back are used over and over again by those in the camp that you can lose your salvation, that you can walk away. But I think Mark has so very well taught us and shown us through the book of Hebrews 
that these are Jewish people that are not believers. They are on the fence. They are kind of getting ready to go back. They are being drawn and yet they are turning and they're going to reject. Uh, many of them will. Um, some who have been drawn turn back without coming to Christ. Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, Jesus said, and I mentioned this verse, John 12, 32, that he would draw all men to himself. All men. After the cross, there is a universal, and by that I mean worldwide, call to believe. In Acts, I think I have this maybe in the next paragraph. Um, in Acts, okay, look down at the bottom of the page. I'll say it now. Acts 17.30. What's that say? God commandeth all men everywhere to repent. God doesn't command anyone to do something he won't enable them and or allow them to do. Okay, and that idea of drawing, God drawing somebody, uh, has the idea of allowing. The only, the only reason you can come to me is because the Father is allowing it. You know, the Father is enabling you. And so Jesus uh, said that he would draw all men to himself and in Acts 17.30, the universal call to believe. God commandeth, commandeth all men, not just in Israel, but everywhere, to repent. Okay, let's get back up to um, John 16.8-11, that paragraph there. John 16.8-11 shows the expanded process behind Jesus' statement in, in John 12.32 when he says, if I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. In, uh, in John 16, 8 through 11. Um, and this is the verse where he says, it's expedient that I go away. I need to go away so that the Holy Spirit comes. For when he has come, he will convict, right? Um, it is expedient that he leave so that the Holy Spirit can come and draw all men in a sense. Okay? I need to die. I need to go away. If I don't do that, he's not going to come. The Holy Spirit. And when he has come, he's going to convict. He's going to draw all men, as it were. No one can come to Jesus without the Holy Spirit working in their lives. This is why easy prayerism, quote unquote, is so dangerous. You know, how many of you want to go to heaven? If you want to go to heaven, raise your hand and, uh, pray, and, pr and pray after me. Does that guarantee that person's faith in the Lord? Does that guarantee that person's repentance? Does that guarantee that person's, uh, you know, the Holy Spirit drawing them to himself in that instance? No. Um, when I was a teenager, I was involved in a lot of different uh, youth groups and charismatic churches and different types of services where everything got emotional and just, you know, just just come down, just pray this prayer. And I'll tell you, I was not saved. And I prayed a prayer. And I was not saved. And I prayed another prayer. And I was not saved. And that went on for like two or three years. And then one night, I was over at my friend's house. And God's Holy Spirit just got a hold of me. You're not saved. You're wicked. Your sin is the problem. Not just this surface idea of come pray a prayer and go to heaven. But your sin needs to be dealt with, and I dealt with it on the cross. And I got saved. And, um, but without that, 
sincerity and that faith and that Holy Spirit convicting you and working in your life, it's just an empty profession. Um, okay. Uh, there has not been a life since the cross that the Holy Spirit hasn't worked in. Okay? When the Holy Spirit comes, he's going to convict. And so uh, convict the world. You say, well, you know, there's far off lands that, that never heard. And, you know, a missionary never came there. And they never had God's word in their language. That does not prevent the Holy Spirit from convicting them of their sin. Of righteousness and of judgment to come. They have enough revelation to condemn them. Okay, the Holy Spirit's not going to magically, let me give you the gospel in, in your language in some far off tribe. That's why we need to go. That's why Jesus says, you shall be witnesses unto me. It's necessary. That's how God worked it. But the Holy Spirit is working and has worked and will work in everybody's life. Now we can, we can resist him. We can sear our conscience to the point where we don't even feel his working in our hearts and lives as a, as a lost person. Um, but anyway. Um, okay. He has either been ignored their conscience has been seared or his light has been received and more light has been given as a result. We see some examples of this in the book of Acts with a person named Cornelius. We see something similar with the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. And so when there is somebody that is seeking, there's a biblical principle, when they are receiving the light that has been given, God will work in their life to bring them more light. Now, does that always happen? Tragically, no. Because God is not saving anybody um, without them hearing the message of the truth. And so, faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. How shall they call on him in whom they've never, never heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And so, God's plan is that by the foolishness of preaching, uh, them that believe would be saved. You know, the preaching of the cross. And so, um, it doesn't make sense to me entirely. Um, as far as those that are of the Calvinistic point of view, you know, and I have friends that are of that point of view. I don't want to bash it. I just want to show you that I don't believe that it's biblical. If you are of that point of view, what responsibility or what reason do you have to witness to anybody? They've got, a flip, they've got a switch flipped, a robot switch that says you will believe. Who cares? I can do nothing. I can do nothing to, to, to give that person the gospel message. They're going to be saved either way by God himself. And so why even bother? That's, um, anyway, but we do see uh, an imperative. We do see uh, a command to go. And God told Philip, go down to the Ethiopian eunuch there uh, in, the, in the wilderness and... Um, Give him the message because he needs to hear it. God told the same thing to Peter uh, to, uh, to speak to Cornelius. Give him the message of the gospel in Acts chapter 10. Those who receive more light are more accountable to receive it. Luke chapter 12, verses 47 and 48. Um, let me go ahead and read that to you. You don't have to turn there. I got it right here. Um, Luke chapter 12 and verse 47. 
Uh, it says this, um, the servant which knew his Lord's will and prepared not himself, neither uh, did according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. Okay, the one that knows what God wants him to do and doesn't do it will be beaten with many stripes. But he that knew not and did commit things worthy of stripes shall be beaten with few stripes. Unto whom much is given, of him much shall be required. Uh, to whom men have committed, committed much, of him they will ask the more. There's a principle in scripture, the more light that's been given, the more responsibility that you have. Um, according to Romans, the Jewish people, and this is the whole point, according to Romans, the Jewish people are going to receive the gospel first because they will be judged first. In the same way that it says the gospel is the power of God and the salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, in the same chapter, it says judgment and wrath and, you know, the punishment of sin from God upon every soul that doeth wickedness to who first? The Jew and also to the Greek. We see that principle, to whom much is given, much shall be required. Um, that's one facet, I believe, of why the gospel is to the Jew first and why it is still to the Jew first. Not just a first century thing. They are more accountable because of having Moses and the prophets. Okay? Um, and then I mentioned... Um, Acts 17.30, God commandeth all men everywhere to repent. God doesn't command anyone to do something he won't enable them or allow them to do. He's not going to say repent and believe the gospel if they are not capable of doing so. And so uh, I think that goes against the Calvinistic viewpoint as well. Okay, let's see where we're at. Let's go down. Uh, let's, let's finish up to verse 45 and we'll pick it up next week with verse 45. But let's read what it says at the top of this page. Uh, Acts chapter 28, verses 23 through 28 says that there were some that believed and some that didn't. Isaiah is then quoted referring to the people's dullness of hearing, closed eyes and heavy ears. This is a statement of Israel as a nation and not referring to individuals. Okay, the passage that's quoted is... Um, I think I have it down here again uh, from Isaiah. I think it's chapter, is it chapter 6? I don't know if they get that reference to you. Um, this is a statement of Israel as a nation, not referring to individuals. Regar uh, regarding, uh, boy, I have some weird wording there. The borrow wording from Romans 11. Because of unbelief, they were broken off. Not the opposite. Not they didn't believe because they were broken off. The Calvinistic viewpoint is that they didn't believe because they were not elect. They didn't believe because they were not drawn. They didn't believe because they were broken off. Here in Romans, paralleling the idea of the people having their, 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 their eyes blinded and their ears dull of hearing, lest they believe, you know, um, is the idea of they were broken off because of their unbelief. They were blinded because, as a nation again, as a nation, they were blinded because of their unbelief. Um, not the reverse, not getting the cart before the horse. And so as people, as individuals, we are not um, made hardened, okay? Like, you know, talk about like Pharaoh, how Pharaoh's heart was hardened, okay? Um, the Bible speaks of, in the book of Exodus, 
God tells Moses before God ever hardens Pharaoh's heart, God says, I know him and I know his heart and he will not let the people go. He was already set in his ways. God just gave him the courage to not be afraid and say, I'm still not going to let them go. You know, um, God solidified Pharaoh's heart. Um, okay, we automatically reverse that verse. Uh, we automatically reverse what, that ver- what this verse is saying. Um, speaking of John chapter uh, 6, verse 44. It's not there are some who would come but can't because the Father hasn't drawn them, okay? Uh, verse 44 again. No man can come to me except the Father which sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. This verse is not saying, it's not saying, there are some who would come, who would want to come, but can't because the Father hasn't drawn them. Okay? They're not of the elect. What it is saying is all who come to Jesus by faith have been drawn by the Father to do so. And again, if we try and take this passage, John chapter 6, and a lot of people in this Calvinism, Arminianism debate, they take this passage and they argue over it and they debate it and so on and so forth. And their debating is like looking at it like the people Jesus is talking to are Protestants. They're not. They're first century Jewish people that believe the Father. They believe God, but not Jesus. They don't see the connection. And so Jesus is saying, all who come to me, they've been drawn by the Father to do so. Um, Okay. A strong focus of John, and this chapter especially, is the relationship between the Father and the Son. Jesus is speaking to Jewish people of his own region who deny his sonship. And so this passage, um, and we'll stop there. There's more that's going to go on, verse 45 through 71, um, that will continue this thought and expand upon it. So if you may have some questions or don't feel like you entirely grasp it yet, we will get a more all-encompassing viewpoint of it as we finish this chapter. Um, You can try and remember to bring those notes next week. We will be having a Bible study in John again next week. Lord willing, we'll finish John chapter 6. Um, but there will be some, some more expansion on this thought of the drawing of God, the giving of God, uh, the giving of the Father to the Son. And all of it is embedded within the context of Jewish people who believe that the God of Israel is the true God, but they don't recognize Jesus. And what Jesus is trying to get them to realize is that if you believe in me, the Father has helped you to do so. If you believe in me, God, your God, whom you say is your God, is in that process. And he has helped you to be able to believe in me. If you reject me, you reject him. Any questions, comments, or discussion? You've been a very captive audience. Yes? Mm. It's Job, is it 38? Job 38, yeah. Somewhere around there, 38, 39, 40, 41, 42. <laughs> In the end of Job. I think it's 38, yep. Okay. All right, well, if not, I'll go ahead and close in a word of prayer. And we'll thank the Lord for the food. Thank you, Lord, for everything that you've done for us. Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries, thanking you for listening to our Bible study. 
These Jewish Awareness Podcasts are a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. If you have questions about the study that you just listened to, or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org, email us at office at jewishawareness.org, or call us at 919-275-4477. Shalom.